So I'm glad that you're here for this series where we're diving into heaven. And I think that song that we just sang really hits at something important because the average person on the street thinks that God is pissed at them. Um, and uh, that song we just sang, like, I, I can see the love in your eyes. Like when God looks at you, he looks at you with affection. Um, that's not to say that he doesn't have something to say about the way that you're living outside the bounds. He wants, Jesus once encounters an adulterous woman in John 8, and we're going to get there next year, uh, and he says to her, go and sin no more. Okay, he says, hey, woman, you're forgiven, but go and sin no more. Jesus is this remarkable ability to look our goodness and our, and our wickedness in the face and love us and kind of shape us, and that's what it's about. It's about interrupting people's lives to see Jesus as this loving, affectionate, truthful person. Um, and in a lot of conversations I've been having uh, with friends that are in various places on their journey, the thing that I keep thinking is, um, if you're here tonight, you're not sure what Jesus is about, my, my invitation to you is this, or my question to you is this, is what if Jesus is really where all of your questions kind of hit, hit their gravity? And what if you didn't know this, but you've been asking questions about Jesus this whole time? And so, one of the miracles then of heaven being that we get to see him face to face is really remarkable. So we're in this series on heaven. We're going to be in the book of John this evening, which is the fourth gospel. And my wife's going to tell me the page number because she's awesome. And it's 648. There's going to be some verses on the screen. The gospel of John chapter 14. This is your gospel of John taste test because we are going to be in the gospel of John next year from January 15th until the last Sunday of June. Um, at Regen, we usually do what we call the Netflix approach to the Bible. So we, on Netflix, when my wife and I are watching a show, we pick a show, we binge watch it from beginning to end. Right now, that happens to be Gilmore Girls. And uh, thank you, thank you. Um, and uh, Rory just started going with Logan. I don't know what that means yet, so don't tell me. And uh, uh, so uh, well, that's usually what we do. We pick up the book of the Bible and we kind of binge watch it. But the Gospel of John, that's a long time. So we're breaking it into mini series. So there'll be four seasons, quote unquote, to the Gospel of John. The first one will begin January 15th. And um, I'm really excited about it. Uh, for Christmas, um, I was talking to somebody this week and I said, I already live in Christmas in about October. So that by the time you hit Christmas, I'm living in Easter. So um, that I can kind of be ahead of the curve. So our, our Christmas series is called We Three Kings, uh, and it shows why you and I need a king and what kind of king ought we to be looking for, and I'm really excited about that. And already begin thinking about and getting excited about uh, one of our best nights of the year is the Christmas this year, Eve, 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 Eve service. Uh, our Christmas Eve, 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 Eve service, now named the Christmas Candlelight Service, uh, for, to you know, save us about seven syllables, is Sunday, December 18th. That is our Christmas service, and we do the candles, we do the whole thing. It's a really amazing night. So I already started thinking about the friends and family that you can be bringing. We usually pack this room out. It's a lot of fun. Um, and so, yeah, so we're going to be in John chapter 14. We're talking about heaven. I'll shut up and just talk about the thing we all want to hear about tonight. So let's pray. Uh, hey, God, thank you for the Bible and this book that you have said to us are not just empty words, but our very life. Not just because they're our life now, but because they will shape and form our life forever. Uh, and so help us to know you tonight as we open this book and hear from you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sheldon uh, Van Auken was an American author, and he wrote a book called A Severe Mercy. A Severe Mercy. And in it, he recounts uh, his journey of losing his beloved wife 
and how he came to cope with that with his increasing faith and his friendship with none other than C.S. Lewis, without whom it seems we can't talk about heaven. Sheldon and Lewis became fast friends when Sheldon, who went by Van, when Van was studying at Oxford, uh, Van was actually a professor of, of literature here in the States. And at their last meeting, right before Van was about to cross the Atlantic to resume his post here stateside, he looked to Lewis and said, I shan't say goodbye, we'll meet again. And as Van tells the story, Lewis crossed the street and yelled for all to hear, Christians never say goodbye. Christians never say goodbye. This hope that goodbye is something that we don't have to say really is what lies at the center of what we believe about heaven. As a pastor, I exist on what I call the fringes of people's lives. Uh, And one of those fringes is at death. And so part of my job is to meet with a family after the death of a loved one, to get to know them, get get to know their loved one's story so that I can adequately speak for them at their memorial service. And when I meet with those families, they say the same phrases over and over again. It doesn't matter what race they are, what gender they are, what generation they are, what socioeconomic class they are. They always say the same things. They say, it's just good to know that my mom's not in pain anymore. Or they say, it's just really good to know that my brother is looking down from heaven on me. Uh, But almost universally, the thing that I hear over and over and over again is this. I just know that I'm gonna get to see dad again. We all have this hope that the goodbye we say at the casket, at the burial, is not the only goodbye. We have this hope that we will be reunited with the one that we love, and this probably more than anything else shapes our imagination about heaven. It shapes our joy and our hope in heaven as the place that after a period of being separated, we will once again be reunited with our grandparents, our siblings, our friends, our parents. And John 14 is a familiar passage that we hear at funerals. And so we're going to look at John chapter 14 tonight. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14 I didn't get to preach the last two-thirds of my sermon this morning at the Grace Campus, so this is, I don't know, what would we call this, exclusive content? I don't know. Um, So get excited. But look at John's words in chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. He says, this is Jesus, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. And if this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you, so that you will always be with me where I am, and you know the way to where I am going. So Jesus starts, where Jesus starts here is exactly what all of scripture has to say about heaven. Here's the miracle of heaven. The miracle of heaven, the first miracle of heaven, the greatest miracle of heaven, is that we see Jesus face to face. The first miracle of heaven is that we get to see Jesus face to face. Jesus says that heaven is about that we will be with him where he is, that you would be with me where I am. Heaven is the place where we see Jesus face to face, which is good news for those of us who have ordered our lives and loves around a person and a principle that we have never seen or touched or maybe even heard audibly. I mean, some of our friends, the very fact, some of your friends, the fact that you're here tonight is based not on like an invisible person, but a bad taco. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, shouldn't be eating that Taco Bell. It gives you stomach aches, then you end up in church thinking you're hearing from Jesus. 
Do you see what I'm saying? And yet for those of us, when we get to heaven, we see Jesus face to face. That's the miracle. The miracle is that we will dwell face to face with Jesus forever. My wife was at a women's event this weekend. And this is really the language that we, I'm even finding myself shifting to based on this conversation. Uh, they were, the crowd there was invited to like pray, you know, the sinner's prayer to like accept Jesus into their heart. And they said, um, because I will have, then, then I can have eternal life was one of the lines. Let me tell you what really eternal life means, what that line should have said, so that I can dwell with you face to face for forever. If you want to know what eternal life is when you see that phrase in scripture and we get to gospel of john it's everywhere eternal life first of all is not a quantity of time it is a quality of time it is a good time and it, eternal life means i get to see jesus face to face jesus tells us that we will meet him face to face in a place that he is preparing for us jesus tells us that we will meet him in a place that he himself is preparing for us jesus right now is undertaking a project to prepare a place for you and i to be with him forever and we can trust that he's doing a good job because jesus spent his earthly life as a carpenter so i feel good about the structure okay that was funny but we tried what will this place be like what will this place that we will be with jesus be like It'll be like every good thing we know about this world, but better. Last week, we looked at Revelation 21 and kind of got a sense of what heaven's going to be like. If you missed that message, get online and listen to it. Um, and one of the things we realize is that heaven is good because every good thing in this world is drawn into that world and made better. And so we will eat hot dog shop hot dogs for all eternity because of that. There will be Chick-fil-A and Chipotle and Starbucks, and there will be mountain vistas and sunsets and lakes and rivers far more beautiful than anything we've ever seen here. And we get to enjoy that with one another and with Jesus forever. Jesus says that he is preparing this place for us now, and it is a place where there is more than enough room. Uh, when I have this passage kind of memorized for doing funerals, and in my head it is, do not, let your trust, heart, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. So it's like a quantity of spaces is what it is in my head. But I like that the NLT says that Jesus says his Father's house has more than enough room. We're not going to be cramped like, uh, like apartment style into heaven right? Like it's not all like studio apartment for you and studio apartment for you. No, there's more than enough room, not only for me and for you, but for everyone we love. And more importantly, there's more than enough room in heaven for everyone that God loves, which is a love more unbreakable and secure and undying than the love that you and I have for anybody. We will have more than enough room to dwell with those we love face to face and face to face with Jesus forever. If the first promise of heaven is that we get to see Jesus face to face, then the second promise of heaven is that we will dwell face to face with one another, all of those who have called upon the name of Jesus across all time and eternity together forever. And let me tell you why this is a problem. Because the person that you are withholding forgiveness in your heart for is the person that you will spend forever with. The person that you are building up bitterness toward in your heart, if they belong to Jesus, you will be in heaven with them forever. The person that you gossip and slander, that's a brother or sister in Christ, sorry guys, I'm just going to let you know, this is how the church behaves. We act like we're that much better and we actually suck way worse, okay? And uh, I'm just going to start preparing you for this because at some point, one of you is going to get pissed at somebody in this room and we got to be ready to how to handle that. That person that you're gossiping about that belongs to Jesus, you're going to be in heaven with them forever. 
And God, like any good parent, I guarantee you, when we get to heaven, there's this thing called the marriage supper of the lamb. It's a big meal. And the person you, I, I have this suspicion that the person you gossiped about most or slandered the most or hated the most or was bitter toward the most is the person that you get to sit with at the meal. The first hour of heaven, Scott McKnight says, is one giant apology party. Scott McKnight also says that in heaven, these homes that Jesus is preparing for us that have more than enough room have both a public veranda for us to have fellowship with one another, but then a private garden for us to have fellowship with God. Because in heaven, heaven is the place where I finally am perfectly united with God and perfectly united and in fellowship with one another, which is why, again, if that is true about heaven, it might want to be affecting the way that I treat the people around me now. And in fact, the church is supposed to be a foretaste of that. Not like the version, like it's supposed to be the appetizer for heaven. The church is the appetizer where we get a taste of what it will be like to be loved and not gossiped about and not had bitterness toward and not unforgiven. But too often the way we treat one another is like getting an appetizer with like somebody's boogers in it. Let's not put boogers in people's appetizers for heaven. Okay, let's make them hair and booger and loogie free. Deal? So Jesus says that he is preparing a place for us. It is a place that we will be with him. It is a place where there's more than enough room for all of us to be together, even those who we love. And Jesus says, we will go there when he comes and gets us. Jesus says, we will, I will go there when he comes and get him. Look at this. He says, when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. I said this last week, but a dear family friend of our family member of ours lost their mother-in-law, and the mother-in-law was asleep and kind of in a coma and woke briefly, only to say, I hear the Lord calling me home, fell back under, and died a few hours later. Listen to me. For those of us who belong to Jesus, there is no such thing as an untimely death. For those who belong to Jesus, there is no such thing as an untimely death. And I know this is hard to process, and some of you have walked grief and sorrow in the last year or five years, and you're saying, no, this person that I went to high school with, or my parent, or my friend, or my uncle, or my grandparent, died an untimely death, and Jesus says no. Because in Acts chapter 17, Paul, preaching to the Athenians, Athenians, uh, their people from Athens, he says that God decided beforehand when we should rise and fall and determine their boundary places. Because God determines when you rise and fall, there is no such thing as an untimely death because there is no just fading away into shadow or a sudden sigh and release. No, what happens is Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, comes to your loved one, takes them by the hand, and leads them from this life to the next. There is no such thing as an untimely death for the people of God. Which is why, by the way, we as Christians do not fear death. The unique contribution that we make to the world is we say death isn't a big deal because it is merely this thing that you pass through on your way to somewhere else. For the Christian, an untimely death isn't, there's no such thing. And even though we fear death and we mourn it and we grieve it, it is transformed for the people of Jesus because we suddenly learn to see what feels like our loss is our loved one's gain. Because scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And the minute 
that your loved one is no longer present in this body, they are face to face with Jesus. And as much as that sucks for us in the intervening time, they have actually gained something. And thus, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. That's why Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. He turned it all upside down, right? He started with, do not let your hearts be troubled, and I wasn't ready to believe that. It was only when I got to the end of verse four and really thought about it that I'm ready to lean into, do not let your hearts be troubled, because Jesus says, you will see me face to face. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled, because in, the, in his house, there is more than enough room for us to be reunited with those we love, and more importantly, all those who God loves for all eternity. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled, for when someone you love is gone, it is I, the great shepherd of the sheep, that have led them from this life to the next. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. But while we're on the topic, what about those we love? I promise in this series some kind of unpacking of these questions that we have when it comes to our questions about heaven. Uh, and if you missed it, I sent out uh, one of the questions and answered them in this week's reconnect email. And the reconnect email question was, if heaven is so good, why don't I just kill myself now to get there? And I thought that was a good idea. So after this, we're gonna have some Kool-Aid <laughs> and uh, let's just go on home. Uh, any other answer to that question? If you ever involved in a faith community and they're like, you're right, let's go now. Run, you know what I mean? Get out. Uh, that's, that's how every cult has ever worked. Uh, but I wanna talk about those who we love and that, that this encompasses questions like, what does my loved one look down on me? It encompasses questions like, will I recognize my family and friends in heaven? It encompasses questions like, what is marriage in heaven like? And depending on the quality of your marriage, that's either gonna be a really sad thing or a really great thing. So let's see what that looks like. But when we talk about this, and last week we answered the question, who will be in heaven? The next question really is, and I answered that question with Jesus, right? Which is true, but coy. So then everybody's like, no, but really, what about those people that I love? Are they in heaven? And I wanna turn to C.S. Lewis, who writes this little sentence, which I think is very helpful. C.S. Lewis says, guesses, of course, only guesses. If they are not true, something better will be. We are now entering the realm of rumor and whisper and theological best guessing. I think as far as I feel in my soul, confident in this, but if I'm wrong, it's only because I didn't get it good enough. Do you know what I'm saying? It won't be so drastically different that, oh my gosh, Pastor Kyle's an idiot. No, he was only an idiot because he totally missed how good it was. It'll be like we ate at McDonald's and we could have gone to Firebirds. You see what I'm saying? So first question is this, do my loved ones look down on me? And I said, so you can just leave that one up for a while. If the first hope we have after the death of a loved one is that we will one day be reunited with them, the second hope is that right now they're looking down on us. That right now from heaven, your grandparents and your parents and your friends and uh, high school classmates that have died early in their life, that right now they're looking down on us. And there's a measure of support for this biblically. Hebrews 12 says that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And I think it's not unfair to say that the saints of the past, all those Christians who are dead, have died in the Lord and are now face to face with Jesus, have at least an awareness of what we're doing. 
That said, the very moments our loved ones pass away, they're going to be infinitely satisfied with the face of Jesus. I know this is hard for us to imagine, but your, your grandma did not see Jesus face to face and said, Jesus, time out for a second. Just want to check on the kids. Because she's fine, and she's fine because she has come to fully understand the love and care and guidance that Jesus not only carried out for her over her whole life, but that Jesus has already and continues to desire to carry out for your whole life. See, she's not needing to check in because she's worried, because she now realizes that she never had a reason to be worried about her own life, much less yours. Now that said, when we get to heaven, our desires will be fulfilled and our joy will be full. And that means that God will not deny us something if it would make our joy fuller. And so if our joy would be made more full by seeing what our loved ones were doing, or at least having the opportunity to, I don't know, turn on some kind of heaven TV just to check in, God will not deny us of that. But what I'm saying is, and I, this is a total brain shift, you're not going to care. Because in that moment, you become so confident in who Jesus always was for you, and you're so confident what he wants to do in their life, you're not really worried about it anymore. In heaven, the eternal satisfaction of seeing Jesus face to face will outweigh our concerns for our loved ones still living. Because they see clearly, we will see clearly God's hand of protection, blessing, hope, and love. In heaven, our loved ones see clearly what we can only see dimly that we are far more secure and loved in the gaze of God than in theirs. You are far more secure and loved in the gaze of Jesus who watches over your life right now than you are over grandma. I'm not saying that's not comforting. I'm not saying that's not good. I'm just saying that they don't really care. It's not that they don't love you. When you get there, they'll be glad to see you. Do my loved ones look down on me? Next, will I recognize my friends and family in heaven? The answer is yes with a twist because you will actually know your family and friends in heaven in a way that you never could know them now. You will know your family and friends in heaven in a deep, tr deeper, truer, more real way. Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 13 says, we see, now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. In heaven, we are granted a completeness of knowledge. The intimacy with which God knows us is how deeply we will know everything. The depth to which God knows you is the depth to which you will know everything, which is good news for me when it comes to things like geometry. Not a clue be fun to have some security in my knowledge in that area. Be fun to have some security in my knowledge in basic accounting skills, right? And um, <laughs> in heaven, we are granted a completeness of knowledge. And Peter Kreeft, a theologian, says that in heaven, we will see our friends and family's faces and know them, but he adds that only in heaven will we really know our friends from within. Even in your marriage, if it's one of the best marriages that has ever existed, you have a measure of knowledge of your, your spouse's inside, but you don't have a completeness. You don't have, even some of you are very newly married and you're like, that's not true. Eh, it is, okay? You don't know everything there is to know. And my friends that have been married way longer than me tell me that it only gets more confusing as it goes. You know, it's not that you get a deeper sense of knowledge, you just gain a knowledge of what you really don't know as your marriage goes on. And yet when we get to heaven, we won't have to second guess one another's motives. 
because there's no need in heaven to second guess our motives because our motives are pure, which by the way means in heaven, you will never say I'm sorry again. In heaven, you will never have to say I'm sorry. In heaven, you will never have to say, would you please forgive me? Because in heaven, you can't mess up and then need to say you're sorry. In heaven, there won't be a relational distance between you because you won't have had your trust betrayed. In heaven, you will know you will know your friends and family, you will know them, but they will almost seem like strangers to you or the people that you knew them as will almost seem like fictional characters because now you know them so completely and so deeply. Lastly, what about my marriage in heaven? This is where a particular teaching of Jesus becomes very disturbing. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is cornered by some teachers of the law with this hypothetical. They said, Jesus, there was once a woman who had a husband and her husband died. And in the Jewish world at this time, when your, when your brother died, you married his wife. Why? So that you could like provide financially for her and her kids. So they say this story, well, this woman had a husband and he died and so that guy's brother married her and then he died and then that guy's brother married her and then he died and then that guy's brother married her and he died and then that guy's brother married her and he died. Uh, Jesus, uh, which one will she be married to in heaven? Okay, first things first, you kind of want to be like, bro, don't marry this chick. <laughs> we, have to, we have something to call her. She's called a black widow, okay? She, she kills you, you know what I mean? That's the real thing. Jesus should have been like, well, first of all, let's, the, what solves this problem is if we don't marry women who just have killed their husbands, evidently, left and right. And this is to trap because they say when they go to heaven, when there's the resurrection, which one of the five will she be married to? And Jesus says something rather disturbing. He says, for when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In that respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. Jesus says that when we get to heaven, we will no longer be married. Which again, if your marriage is terrible, that might be really great news. Uh, if your marriage is really great, that's a little heartbreaking, Right? Uh, for some of us who maybe are parent or children of divorce, that's a little confusing, right? Because like my mom's remarried, so like which one would she be married to in heaven? So maybe it's a little alleviating to know like in heaven it's not like a choice, you know, there's not like a drawing of straws um, because I'm inclined to say something that I really shouldn't say right now. So let's just keep, let's slurp that. And uh, Jesus' answer is you won't be a, pro that won't be a problem because you won't be married in heaven. And that feels like a loss, in heaven, everything is made better, but for us to say that we're no longer married, to those of us who are married, feels like that's a step backwards. And yet, remember that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that marriage is merely an image of Christ and the church. It is a shadow of the relationship that exists between me and Jesus. My marriage ought to function so that Steph feels like she's married to Jesus, which I guarantee you she does not. Um, and, and, so, and so, that hint of intimacy that's between Steph and I is ultimately swallowed up and overtaken by the intimacy that I then share with God and as a result, everybody else. In fact, it's not that then even in heaven I have like a special relationship with her, it's almost that we have such intimacy that we're all married to each other, but we're not. See, again, that sounds like a cult, right? Let's drink the Kool-Aid and I'll be married. Let's move to Utah while we do it. And uh, 
The intimacy shared by spouses on earth is merely a shadow of what's to come. And when we get to heaven, our marriages are swallowed up by the marriage that exists between we as Jesus's bride and Jesus as our groom. And so the ultimate destination of our marriages is that they climax with, with our intimacy with Christ. I did not say this, I did not come up with this. I did tell a room of senior high boys this once. The closest thing that you experience to heaven on this side, systematic theology to at Moody Bible Institute, direct quote, the closest thing you experience to heaven this side of earth is an orgasm. Because in that moment you are so perfectly joined in perfect ecstasy that that is like a taste of what heaven is like. In heaven our marriages fade away now, the good news is that because we're all in this communion of fellowship together, like it's not like if your dad had two wives that it's going to be like this awkwardness, right? Because even if your dad had a really great relationship with your mom and then she died and then uh, he got remarried and she was great, that is still a product of the fall of this world and that it's broken, and so some of that is even healed then, right? So it won't be like if your parents are divorced and they're in the same room and it's awkward turtle, it's going to be this really calming communal thing. And I know that's kind of a weird answer, but that's the answer Jesus gives, that our intimacy with Jesus swallows up our marriages. And so let me end you with this, because the text does this really interesting thing where Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Uh, in my father's house, there was more than enough room. If it were not true, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And he says, and when everything's ready, I'll come back and get you so that where I am, you will also be with me. And then at the end of verse four, Jesus says, and you know the way to where I'm going. And in verse five, Philip, God bless him. Philip goes, Jesus, I don't think so. <laughs> Jesus is, Philip says in verse five, no, we don't, Lord. Oh, no, this is Thomas. Sorry, Philip asked a question later. Thomas, doubting Thomas, bless the guy, right? Thomas says, Lord, we don't know the way. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? Thomas is a man after my own heart because Jesus just painted a really beautiful picture of heaven, and Jesus is like, so, I, like, I, you know the way to where I'm going. Now, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's the kind of people that a person says something and you didn't hear what they said, and so you just laugh, hoping that it was an appropriate thing to laugh about. <laughs> and then there's the people that are like, I'm sorry, I didn't understand you. I am the first kind of person. So if you find yourself having said something to me that didn't require a laugh, and I laughed, it's probably because I wasn't like hearing you. Uh, but there are people in the world that are like, no, time out. And that's kind of what Thomas does. Like Jesus says, you know the way to where I'm going. And inside, if Kyle's one of the disciples, he's like, yeah, we, yeah. And inside, he's, I'm like, crap, like what did Jesus say about that? Like, hang on. And Thomas is like, well, flag on the play. Uh, I don't know. And this is when Jesus utters one of like the most famous lines in all of scripture is when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is, and from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Jesus paints one of the most memorable pictures of heaven, and our hearts say, I want to go to there. Our hearts say, I want to go to there. And so Jesus says, all right, I will tell you how to get there. And, but the verse that he uses is the verse that like all of us wrestle with because it makes Jesus sound so exclusive. Right? This is the verse that when we're in a conversation with somebody that doesn't believe in Jesus, no, Jesus is the only way. He said he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Contextually, 
This is not Jesus arguing with a non-believer. This is Jesus setting his people free to know, that, to know what really matters. Because this sounds exclusive. Let's get real. This sounds exclusive. No one comes to the Father except through me. Man, I've got a really nice atheist friend. I mean, really? Or somebody once asked me in heaven, like, what about Gandhi? Like, Gandhi was a good guy. But Jesus sets us free from a couple of things. He sets us free from the exclusivity of, because Jesus isn't all that exclusive. What's even more exclusive is you have to be perfect and to have never made a bad decision or done a wrong thing ever to get into heaven. And Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say the way you get into heaven, guys, is being really good. The way you get into heaven, guys, is behaving every, behaving every rule. Jesus says, no, I'm the way. I'm the truth and I'm the life. He doesn't say, uh, follow me. He just says, I'm the way. He says, if you know me, you know the way. If you know me, you know life. If you know me, you know the truth matter, the true facts to get there. On the other hand, Jesus doesn't say, guys, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. They say, I, I want to go to there. And he's like, you know what, guys, secret, everybody gets there. It's not what he does. He does kind of draw the line, but I would say this is its own form of exclusivity. Even saying that everybody gets in excludes those of us that are wondering, well, is there no justice? Like, what about this unrepentant serial murderer who just relishes in this? I mean, I don't know if I want a heaven that he just gets in kind of scot-free. On the other hand, I don't want a heaven where like I have to work so hard that like I have to be perfect. And Jesus says, no, 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 it's connection with me. He says, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. And the only reason that's possible is because you have seen and known the Father through me. Gospel of John is obsessed with relaying the connection between Jesus and the Father. Which is why Philip chimes in and he says, well, just show us the Father and we'll be good. See, that's like the spiritual Oprah answer. Right? Like, Jesus, just like, show us God. And we'll be fine. And Jesus says, Philip, no, no, no. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father because his word is in me and I do exactly what he tells me to do. And so the question, by the way, becomes, and this is the last one and we'll kind of end here, is here's the question that you really want to know because ultimately if it is true, and it is, that Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. There's somebody in your life that has died and you don't know if they professed Christ. And scripture says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you're thinking, I don't know this about my loved one. On the one hand, we need to take this seriously because if we don't, then there's no reason to get together for church. There's no reason to sing. There's no reason to be equipped and there's no reason to ever tell anything about Jesus. But if what Jesus is saying here is true, that no one comes to the Father except through me, you and I got to get to work. There are three missionaries sitting in this room right now. Uh, they got to work because it said, no one comes to the Father except through me. But the more and more I spend time around death, let me just tell you this. I don't know for sure. I don't know what happens in the last moments of a person's life. I don't know uh, if Jesus is, did you know Muslims across the Middle East are coming to know Jesus because he showed up to them in a dream? If Jesus can show up to a Muslim in a dream, he sure as heck can show up to your loved one in those last moments of their life and give them an opportunity to trust him. And Jesus says 
that they are no worse off than if they had believed their whole life. He tells this really great parable about people that got in and started working at 8 a.m. and then some people started working at 4.30. And at five o'clock, the whistle blew. Everybody went in to get their pay and everybody got paid the same thing. Guys, I don't like to work all that much. So if I'm the 8 a.m. guy and I've known Jesus since I was like five, the 4.30 p.m. guy, I'm like, bro, back up off and give me some of that money, you know? And Jesus says they get the same reward. And so I, I really rely in this sense on Graham 12th tree, who writes, we have no other alternative than to leave the matter in the hands of a God we have come to trust as fully just and fully loving. Now we are in Bible college, we could stay up till two talking about this, but this is really all there is. We have no other alternative than to trust our loved ones and to the hands of a God who we've come to know is fully just and fully loving. And we still get to work. I mean, we still take Jesus seriously and we follow him, we wanna make him known, which is exactly where Jesus ends John 14. John, almost every passage on heaven, do you know what it says? It doesn't say, kill yourself to get there faster. It says, get to work, son. Almost every passage, 1 Corinthians 15, a whole chapter about our resurrected bodies, ends with my verse for this year. Therefore, my beloved brothers, stand firm. And uh, wait, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 1 Thessalonians 4, where it talks about God's gonna just come and pluck us up in the rapture, it ends with get to work. And Jesus ends his foundational teaching on heaven with get to work. He says this, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works that I have done and even greater works because I am going to the Father. You can ask for anything in my name and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Jesus gives us a blank check of his power and presence to accomplish his purpose. Not for you to get a BMW, not for you to pass your chem test, not for your taxes to be lower than you hoped. Jesus gives us a blank check of his presence and power to accomplish his purpose, and he says, so get to work. He says, you will do greater works. Well, what greater works is that? Jesus never preached in Champion, Ohio. It's a greater work. Jesus never really preached outside a little realm, and his apostles went to, uh, realm of the world, and his apostles went to India and all over the Middle East and, 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 the, and the Mediterranean world, and the gospel has spread around the globe, and we're sending missionaries to Malaysia and, and China and India and all these other places in South America, and Jesus says you'll do greater works because he's going to the Father. We gotta get to work, because if this is true, we wanna make sure that as many people are there as possible, and it is not a situation where we've gotta be selective because there might not be enough room. Jesus says there, there, there's more than enough room. This is not like we only have six people to do a little dinner road trip to Cleveland. Who do we want in the car? This is not the NBA draft. We only have this much money to spend. Who are we gonna spend it on? Evidently, the answer is LeBron. And uh, by the way, I'm wearing a sports hoodie tonight, so I don't know, that's pretty cool. And uh, <laughs> that's, some of us is like, well, that's a miracle. Um, but ultimately, we do this because we don't wanna have to actually say goodbye to anyone. Because Christians never say goodbye. Sheldon Van Alken's hope was that when his wife died unexpectedly from what they thought was a cold that turned out to be much worse, his hope was that he'd see her again. And so he writes after her death, 
when I myself come to cross that boundary that she has crossed, I think I shall find her hand and hear her voice first of all. In heaven, every tear of pain is wiped from our eye, and yet our memory is intact. And we don't want to be whatever the heaven version of disappointment and sorrow to be in our souls because we didn't do the work to which we were called. Because it's as easy as pointing people to Jesus and as hard as ripping off the mandate and having a hard conversation. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, you defy our expectations at every corner and uh, your grace and your way of working in the world is always surprising and so help us to see you a little differently. Change our expectations to have your expectations Change our eyes to have your eyes and our hearts to have your hearts. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. Help us to see people the way you see people. And help us to point them to you who is the way. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.